0: Products will come and go, cultures will come and go, but if you build a brand that gives you the permission and the trust with your customers, that you can really build long-lasting success, wealth, shareholder value, all those kinds of things over a long course of time.
1: Welcome to another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella. As you know, our show's mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. So for each and every one of you who are brand new to the show, I just want to welcome you to the Kelly family. And if you want to get a hold of one of our faculty, or if you're wrestling with a leadership question that we could try to answer for you, or you simply know of a person that's going to make a great guest for our show, send us an email to roipod, that's R-O-I-P-O-D at I-U-P-U-I dot E-D-U. There, we're going to give you the next steps on getting you connected to the resources that you need to make you a better leader. All right, so... How many of you have been a part of a company that's either been bought out or has been the company that's bought out another organization. Typically when that happens, we all know, for all of us that have lived through it, it becomes a very daunting, scary, I mean the future is very shaky as an employee and it even for those who are customers of that organization, it can be a very tricky balance to keep a a brand or to merge markets together um, and to keep confidence high so how do we brand or rebrand ourselves um, in those acquisition moments to not just keep a strong staff base and confidence high but to also ensure our customers and our customer base that look things are going to be moving at or even better than where they were before. Joining me today, we have the CEO of Element Three, a marketing consultancy firm, Tiffany Souter. Welcome to the show, Tiffany.
0: Thanks. I'm excited to be here.
1: So, talk us to a little bit about you yourself, kind of how you got here, and just what you guys do on the day to day basis here at Element Three.
0: So, I'm an Indiana kid. I joke I did all the Indiana things. Uh, grew up. My dad was a farmer when I was young. My grandpas were both pastors. I went to Purdue. I worked at Lilly, I lived in a farmhouse, like all the things.
1: So you are like Indiana know, to a T, to
0: the maximum, yeah. Um, and I'm, I really love it. And um, so at Purdue, I studied business. Funny joke in my house was you could go anywhere you wanted to as long as it was Purdue. So uh, <laughs> I think the strategy was my dad, it was like close enough to home that if we did something stupid, he could yank us back and we could commute. I don't know. Um... So yeah, I went to pr- I went to school for finance, was really interested in business, started um, my career at Lilly in like essentially as a cost accountant, working a lot with numbers. And I started to see um, that marketing was changing a little bit. And so through a series of serendipitous events, at twenty five years old, I find myself as a partial owner of what's now Element three. It was a small little business that my dad and I bought. And started to really take a hard look at what's going on in marketing. And if you look back 15 years ago, that's when, you know, we were kind of starting to dabble with the internet. Email marketing was kind of starting to make its way into our lives. And it was this big inflection point. And you can look back and say it was strategic. I think it was probably more opportunistic. And that I got to learn marketing in a modern environment kind of from the beginning. I didn't have to take this traditional construct of marketing and try to learn it in the digital world. I was really learning as it was reemerging in a lot of ways. So I don't know, fast forward 15 years later and here we are, it's been a really fun ride. But one of my early mentors, her name is Marcia Stone um, and ended up working inside of Element 3 for about seven years. She really was a brand thinker and understood the science of how do you take organizations and who they are, their mix of their product, their leadership, their cultures, their customers, their markets. And how do you amplify the best of in a way that creates a compelling sustained story and value proposition? And I don't think there's very few of us anymore, especially with how fast technology evolves, that have a true product differentiator for a long period of time. It's just innovation, the innovation cycle goes so fast that it really is usually on something else that you have to figure out how to differentiate. And so I was really fortunate in being able to, I think, learn marketing first through the discipline of brand, which is the most lasting currency most of our companies have. Products will come and go. Fads will come and go. Leadership you know, cultures will come and go. But if you build a brand that gives you the permission and the trust with your customers to be able to sell them something that they're going to say, I know this is going to be good and I know that you're going to respect the trust I've given you as a company that you can really build long-lasting success, success, wealth, shareholder value, all those kinds of things over a long course of time. So as we
1: get into this conversation about, you know, seeing organizations that come in, um, maybe there's mergers happening. I mean, it's fairly common. We see it a lot where bigger businesses come in, um, buy in either failing businesses or come in by successful businesses. And we see a lot of merging happening. And I'm sure a lot of our audience have been part of a merger to some degree. In fact, maybe some are getting ready to um, merge or thinking about how they're going to acquire mm-hmm. another organization. so for organizational leaders as they're getting ready to navigate through the really scary waters of any sort of merge, um, where's a great place to start like what's what 's the thought process mm-hmm. um, to begin this journey of okay here 's what we got to get down first before we even start signing papers or you know making first strategical moves. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and maybe just a a minute of background for our listeners about how we got to this topic, Matt, as we were talking about brand. Um, Almost 100% of the time, a company decides to take on a brand initiative at an inflection point of change. Uh, And that can be a leadership change. It can be they're trying to enter a new market. But increasingly, we have found, and I think as there is a lot of liquidity and people are putting... You know there's a lot of private company transactions that are happening right now. We see those change events coming in this in the plate in the um, form of mergers and acquisitions, where a private equity group is coming in. They're taking a platform company. They spend maybe three years buying a bunch of accessory companies and slamming them together. And that made sense for the PE firm, but now the management team is left with figuring out how do I make sense of this to all the people who are going to have to deal with this? outside of our financial stakeholders. Um, And the same thing if it's a divestiture, right? If somebody used to do three things and now they do two, how do you figure out how to do that? So that's kind of why we decided to focus on this idea of brand in the environment of mergers and acquisitions because it's kind of a microcosm for what happens in a change event. Uh, The other place that we see a lot of it is generational family change. You know, when you go from G1 to G2 or G2 to G3, there's usually different ways of thinking about it, or they have growth goals that maybe their parents or uncle before them didn't, and that starts to really change the dynamic of the company too. So going now back to your question of like where do you start, I think the number one thing that people have to understand and accept is that it is a new company. This new thing that you formed, even if company A bought company B, and company A is sort of going to be the winner, if you could see me, I'm saying this in quotation marks, (laughs) the brand winner, meaning that's what the company is going to be called, and uh, company B is the thing that was acquired, you have to understand that the entity is something new. Um, And that doesn't mean that you have to divorce it from what has been, that it has to be newly formed in a way that it doesn't have any aspects of the past. But there is something new that is formed. And until everybody feels like I was part of contributing to the fact that this new entity, these two things or three things or seven things that came together, now has more opportunity than any of us individually had. And part of who I am in my DNA as this sort of contributing company is now showing up in this new thing that we are, starts to take away this sense of there being winners and losers um, in this game of companies coming together. And, and I think the second piece of it is being incredibly truthful during the process about what is actually happening. I think that's a place where I see leaders, especially that haven't been through this a couple of times, the thing you want to say to your employees is all your jobs are going to be safe and everything is totally going to be fine and there's nothing that's going to change. And that's the biggest lie you can likely say. Sometimes that's the case. And so those are the two things, is you have to address truth in a way that is respectful and understands people are adults and they deserve and respect truth. And the other is to understand that this is something new. And how do we take the constructs of each individual and the past and the assets they bring and help people understand how they're part of the new picture?
1: And really, there's two kind of people or two groups of people that this really affects because fear, I think, is the big underlying um, factor with with how people react. You know, when they feel that their um, their day to day is going to change, that something new is changing, the leadership's changing, something's changing, they do get the sense that this is going to be new, um, and some people. Jump on it gung ho, and a lot of people are, are really fearful. Both internally, the employees and the culture that you're trying to protect and uplift, and also uh, externally, the customers and uh, those that you are serving to, you know, make make a profit. Um, but before we get to that, I, I want to know from your end. You you were mentioning this. The brand, you know, the brand being a very important currency, I mean, probably the most valuable currency. So what is it that makes a successful brand work? What are some of the elements that really create um, that sense of trust?
0: Yeah. And I mean, brand uh, is, we joke even in like, when we talk to customers and people who are thinking about hiring an agency to support with this, is like it's a, we're in an unregulated industry in the sense that the word brand means a lot of different things to different people. So I'll share what it means to me. Um, and, and it's really about like wh- what is the, what is the unchanging nucleus and essence of who the company is? And to me that's a combination of what the leadership believes and who they are as individuals, the values of the company, and the compelling why, to use the Simon Sennett golden circle, of the problem that you're committed like, to death to solve. And those three things, the leadership, the values and culture, and the mission, the why that you are really committed to solving, that to me is what brand is about. And the hard part about brand is because we have to get so many different stakeholders to understand it, it has to be simple. And it goes back to that whole adage of, you know, it's like – if I had more time, it would have been shorter. And And I think that that piece of it, the simplification, is where having an external partner is actually really helpful. I joke, it's like why you can't rearrange furniture in your own house. You just can't see it differently, because it's so familiar and you're so close to it. And oftentimes, we hear things that sound like, I have new language to explain, what I've always understood about who we are from you know from leaders. But now I have new language to express that in a way that brings me to life, connects in a way that my customers and my employees can hear me differently, and that's that's really what brand is about: is how do you find these words that just light everybody on fire and that and 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 they're true about what the company's about. Sure, because that
1: leads to I think the the next thing is because once you have that brand in your your identity, you got to then get your organization to buy in because they know. That change is coming. I mean, being being someone that sat through a buyout, it's very scary. Um, in the sense that maybe it's not as fearful as it seems, or but you just there's so many uncertainties. Like you want to know all the info now. You want to know is my job basically the bottom line? Is my job going to be safe? And then you know you get people that are you know groups of people that are whispering. And I heard this. I heard this. I heard this. So in the midst of that, because that does bring and you want to have a successful transition and retain, you know, the great talent that's there already, you know, what can organizational leaders start to think about and explore uh, just with that internal sense of defending culture um, and protecting uh, this, this merge so it could be successful?
0: Yeah. One of the things I talk to leadership teams about when they're going through transition, is I say, Without a clear understanding of the future, people will hang on to and glamorize the past. And it's like we all want to hang on to something, and if you don't give me something to reach forward to, even if it's a future deadline of when I'm going to know the answer to some of the questions that I have, people will continue to hang on to the past. So that's one is setting expectations and being okay saying, I know you want the answer today, and I have two choices as a leader. One is to give you something that is 50% 50% done and likely is going to have a lot of change in iterations and you're going to have to stick with me through all that. And so you understand that that's where it at, is at, you know, employee population or whomever as you're communicating. Or the other is to say this is the commitment of when I know I'm going to have clarity to that answer and you'll be able to get your, your questions answered. And, and that oftentimes quiet thi- quiets things down um, in setting expectation of this is gonna be the cadence of what's gonna happen. The other thing I see that is just human is that most of these deals don't happen fast. You know, the deal's been going on for a long time in the background. Maybe they were shopping the company and it's been six, nine, 12 months that the management team has been dug, through, you know, drug through this long due diligence process. They're trying to get their jobs done by day and the stuff, this process is going on by night they're this emotionally exhausting to kind of pretend like everything is fine, knowing that there's likely an inflection point of change coming from the people that you've led and employees you've brought together. And that's just human nature. And so they're pooped. The papers are signed and they're like, it's done, except that that is the start line for everybody else. And so that weariness of knowing, I know why I did the deal personally, or I know how to explain it as part of the management or leadership or executive team, or if you're an owner who actually got some money as part of the transaction. But now you have all these people who are really dealing with it on day one, and you have to find a completely, not different, but I would say their experience is connected in a different way to what just happened. And, and they're out of words, and they're out of energy, and their brain doesn't work anymore. And so as much as anything, we support them in, well, what is the messaging first to your midline managers? And what are the questions they're going to get day to day from the people who are trying to figure out what this means for them? And how do you help them have the space to deal with their own fears so that their downline isn't hearing and experiencing that? And then it's, okay, what about your major customers? What, what's the message to them? And what's the reinforcement that they're going to have? And what are the questions and support that they're going to need? And helping them, you know, we, we're not experts in their business, but we can help them think through that. And then the last piece is really the marketplace, right? The, there's fear-mongering and all kind of predatory things that happen whenever there's a major event, especially in smaller, more niche industries. And so how do you get out in front of the marketplace, deal with major trade shows or whatever might happen so that that audience also is hearing from you, hopefully for the first time? So I don't know. I feel like at face value it feels kind of menial that like people are tired and their brains are dead and they don't know what to say. But that's, i found like, kind of bar none, really a theme that we see over and over is, I know why this mattered to me, and I'm so tired, like, you know, and I haven't seen my wife in a while, or my husband, or whatever that is, you You've sort of have all these family dynamics, because you've just been through this huge thing, and having an easy button to push and someone to help facilitate that has been a real big part of the process too.
1: Well, not to mention too, I mean, when you kind of get to that next step, I mean, that next step after getting through the acquisition should be the, all right, now we can really get like hit the gas pedal and go with excitement. And yet if you're exhausted, it kind of drags some of that, you know, momentum you could build. And I think, you know, that there's two, you know. Two things that are always true: there's always going to be some good news, like great news, um, and there's also always going to be bad news, or maybe not always bad news, but there's going to be some of those dynamics boiled in. Like not everyone's going to be so super happy, and probably uh, you know some people are going to just be uh, bummed. So how do you leverage? uh, Kind of a two-part question: how do you leverage the good momentum with good news? Like how can an organizational leader really rally? Like hey, this is going to be something awesome, and use that to rally people and then the second part would be you know when you do have to deliver some of that tough news you know how do you do it in a respectful and um truthful way um that you know just allows people that space of knowing hey look this is just how it is without you know totally being brash
0: yeah so i'll start with the first one um cuz i have a better answer for that right now <laughs> um, one of you, your first question was, um, how do you get people excited? And, you know, I think in many ways, employees are like, yeah, yeah, your job is to get up in front of me and sell me that this was a really good idea. And we do, as leaders, need to give compelling, inspiring, you know, talks that say, this is why you are committing your time, talents, and energy to this organization and to me as a leader. But really their question right after they leave that meeting is, but show me the proof. Is there evidence of it? And this is something another leader taught me is that people will remember the information you point them towards. And we all in our jobs see the data points that our job creates and the thing that the organization is working on or integrating or whatever may or may not be the thing that touches your life. So if you come out and say, we're making great progress on the integration, and now every part of the company has been integrated except for finance, and you're in finance, you're like, that's a load of crap. Nothing has been integrated in the company anywhere. But that might, that might be true for that person's world. And so the, the point in all this is, make sure that you're, you're publishing your wins and progress to the entire organization so that everybody's counting the wins similarly. That doesn't mean it has to touch my world for you to get credit as a leader for making progress on that. But I'm understanding you're making good on your word that you said we were going to make progress and you're taking the time to bring back and loop back to me the evidence that we are making progress or the things that we've learned as part of that. And that shows such intellectual respect that you're not just shipping me propaganda of like hopes and wishes of winning. We, we all have that as sort of like coaches that we want to win. Um, but that's a big piece of the belief cycle that this is the you know, opportunity or value proposition that we believe exists with these two companies together, we're going to be able to get greater share of wallet across our customer base. Well, maybe the seven customers I own haven't yet been sold additional products, but if we're able to say across our 15 largest clients, we were able to increase our share of wallet by 17%, which is an additional this much, you know, money to the organization, which allows us to create a greater competitive set, all that starts to show really measured progress towards what some of the major investment thesis were for the companies even coming together.
1: So then how do you, you know, on the other side of that, when you do have to deliver some tough news, maybe there potentially is some some downsizing or, uh, you know, there's just not great news because peop- someone's whole workflow and process is changing. So how do you as a leader then kind of get on, like you said, that, that, that front end within their or- own organization um, and just be truthful but not so cold through that delivery?
0: Yeah, I, I think it is um, like there's no good way to make being punched in the face feel good sort of thing. <laughs> sure. um, but what I have learned when there's bad news is tell people what, tell people why, and then tell people where to put their energy instead. Um, and m- not, and that is not to make the event trivial because obviously those people's lives and that moment of time is really a big inflection point, maybe for a negative reason, but to say, guys, we got to get back to winning, right? This is what happened. This is why these are the decisions that we had to make. They were incredibly difficult. Anytime you have to let people go, it's, you know, there's no easy way to do it. It's
1: like breaking up. Like there's no easy way,
0: but this is where we have to focus because this is what is most critical to making sure that we continue to win another day. And what I have found, and it sounds callous is that there is definitely moments where people have some survivor's guilt, and they're like, "My buddy, you know, the cube beside me is now empty, and that was my buddy, and this is strange, and I don't know how to, I don't know who to go to lunch with now." But by and large, what people want to know is that I'm part of a winning team, and that if I stay here, I'm going to get a chance to win championships, so to speak. And I think redirecting people to like. This is a sucky day. Everybody take this day to sort of feel like crap, super normal. And then we're going to go back to our desk and we're going to crush it because our customers are counting on us. And when we crush it, great things happen. And when great things happen, we get to hire your buddy back. And that's just how we're going to do this together.
1: It's humanizing. It's saying, you know, look... I did not – I was not excited about this because I think a lot of times, you know, you get that perception of someone gets let go and the boss is just whatever. They don't care. They're not bought in. They're just a robot that's just totally down with firing someone and then just leaving us to deal with the emotional mess. And so I think just recognizing that, I think that's a great perspective of validating what everyone else is feeling as a leader and then just saying "Be just. it's okay being that because I think, you know, just – in any sort of relationship, whether that be personal, even, you know, work relationships, even though the news sucks, just the fact that you know that the person, every, other people are feeling it and that it's okay, goes way further than, all right, this person's like, oh, and then you don't talk about it again.
0: The, the other thing I'll say is I think people want to activate, they want to do something. And so I've also found when you say like, look, go find your coworkers and then leave a review on their LinkedIn if you know of, if you hear of a client, you know, a customer saying that they need somebody and you and somebody from this team that was just let go could help, make sure that you're recommending to your friends and people, you know, at church and like feeling like they're not, not part of the family anymore. And that's our job as best we can to help them get connected into opportunities. I think people, that's the other thing is they feel helpless and giving them a way to activate and kind of help, so to speak, is also a way to channel that energy.
1: So then on the other side, we kind of started talking a little bit, you know, with marketing on, on the outside of the organization. What are some things or, or practices as you think about, okay, how are we going to communicate this? How are we going to get in front of um, our clients um, or the people we serve and represent uh, before other news from outside sources? You know, what's a good strategy to start getting them pe- getting them in the conversation?
0: Yeah, I think the first thing is, um, and I'm thinking in the construct of things that are more B2B environments, so somebody listening to this, it's like changing a potato chip bag or something like that. This doesn't apply quite as much, but um, what I see happen is that leadership understands this really well, and the sales team has to understand it like almost as well. And so making sure that you're putting together the story in a concise way so that the sales team feels really equipped to say, here's what happened, here's why, here's the impact that's going to have, and here are likely the questions that you have, Mr. Client, Prospect, Partner, whatever that looks like, so that they go in really feeling like, I have a chance to be the answer man. And where it starts to unravel is when the sales team is not properly trained, you almost have to think about it like a new product rollout. Here's the what, here's the why, here's the activation. Here's the way the client or prospect can engage back with the company if they have additional questions or one escalation. Here's a way that we're capturing those continued questions as a sales team so that we can disseminate what's the Q&A and having a cycle of, hey, weekly, let's get together and understand what's the chatter, what are you hearing, how are people responding to this. And and really managing it very, very closely. It sometimes it's just too willy nilly of it's like everybody get on the phone and let them know this is happening and it's not treated almost like a product rollout. Like treat it with a lot of care because when salespeople feel confident, the customer un- feels that. And when they feel uncertain and uncomfortable and like they're making stuff up along the way because their alternatives are do I make it up and pretend I know? or do I say I don't know, Um, they feel vulnerable in both of those situations. So um, arming them, training them, doing some um, almost like role play with them is a really key piece of it.
1: Finally, you know, in the midst of this, as you said, there is a big emotional tax played by uh, all the leadership involved with uh, emerging or branding or always trying to, you know, stay in that winning mindset So what do you, what do you say to leaders who are just struggling or depleted or in the midst of it and they are having a hard time energizing themselves? Because when a leader's tapped out, the team feels it, whether the leader's trying to fake it or not, like it's felt then you can see someone's eyes and they're just kind of, they're depleted. So in the midst of that, what are some, you know, self-correction advice that you would have for, for organizational leaders really struggling?
0: Well, I have a heavy personal bias in this because I value transparency personally at a very high level. So my favorite leaders and the ones that I think do this best, my personal bias is heavily influenced by that. So I'll I'll sort of lead into it by that. But the ones I have seen, I would say, garner the most respect and camaraderie through a process of immense change. If they're in a spot where they're just kind of in a funk, in a way that's appropriate, they admit that to the company or to their leader, their midline leaders, and they say, you know, and I think as I see this especially when, let's say, it's maybe second- or third-generation family and they're selling the business to a publicly traded company or a big PE firm, and they say, man, we just had a client go through this. This is a big deal for our family. It was emotional all the way around. You know, Grandpa started this, and... We wrestled a lot with, what what did he want his legacy to be? Was it that we become part of a billion and a half dollar organization and we impact more lives than we ever could have in three gen, you know, in three more generations, or is it that we try to keep every ounce of manufacturing in our small town? Like, in in those and families wrestle with that at a level that is like, just core in their DNA, and so the ones I've seen do that kind of thing best is they're just honest, and they say, you know, at the end of the day, life is about living with the consequences of your decisions, and weighing all the pros and all the cons, and looking at the balance of it all, we decided as a family the right thing to do was to sell it, and, you know, I hope with everything that I am, and my, and all of my energy is going to be putting in to making this successful, and 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 I'm asking you guys to join me in that and there's going to be times you're going to have to help me move my feet, help me lift my arms because this has been a big responsibility and and then at night when I go home I'm really tired. And 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 even just hearing I made up that story but it's like you want to make it that leader's decision be right as an employee. And I think that the more authentic you are about the real-life human part of doing something big and hard that, frankly, most of us have never done before. It really incites true loyalty from employees and from people who want to be part of making a decision right.
1: Tiffany, thank you so much for being our guest on the ROI podcast. <laughs> yes, awesome. This is Tiffany Souter, CEO of Element 3, a marketing consultancy firm here in downtown Indianapolis. This has been another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella. Our show's mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. We'll see you next week.